You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. This show is for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed or used in any other form without permission. For more information about this, please visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk or contact us via our social media at bgtfshow. Welcome to this episode of the British GT Fan Show for all the latest on the 2020 Intelligent Money British GT Championship and more. Coming up in this episode, we've got the latest news, as well as our take on last weekend's action at Alton Park, an interview with Team Tegawa, and we take a look ahead to our next round at Donington Park and our guide to the circuit. The British GT Fan Show is hosted by Sarah Smith alongside resident British GT expert Nicholas Smith and Andrew Brightman and Gaz Jacobs of the British GT fans. To kick off the news for this episode, we have an announcement to make. So over to our editorial director, Nick, for more. Yes, it's it's quite an exciting bit of news, actually. Obviously, recently we've had quite an acrimonious split with motorsport media, motorsport.radio, basically. We wanted to go in one direction in terms of, of quality and and content, and Motorsport.media wanted to go uh, a different direction, um, and so we brought that to a close. So we can now announce something that was being discussed between us back when we were still with Motorsport Radio, but can now go ahead, which is partnership with the Checkerflag.co.uk. Checkerflag.co.uk is now over 10 years old. I've been fortunate to be working with them for about seven of those years, and they've become the largest or one of the largest independent motorsport news outlets in Europe. And they cover everything from Ginetta Junior all the way up to Formula One, World Endurance, World Rally. Um, They've got a number of different areas that they focus on. They've got TCF Gaming. They've got TCF Off-Road, or TCFX, as it was known, and they have TCF Sports Cars. And TCF Sports Cars is particularly where we're coming in. So we are now the British GT fans show fueled by TCF Sports Cars, and we're going to be working together to provide both audio and written content. And so they'll focus on the writing, we'll focus on the audio stuff, and we'll We'll be working together on major projects like the big interview we had recently with Rick Parfit Jr. It's a very exciting move for us. It brings in an organisation which punches well above its weight in, in motorsport, motorsport media in terms of the, the news out there. So we're, we're, we're pretty happy with it. We also saw at the weekend that there was a new addition to the track. We seem to have a new safety car. So let's have a chat about this. Yes. Um, it seems that Lorna Vickers has got herself a new company car. Last year, she was driving the McLaren 720S. Uh, the year before, she had a 570. This year, she's at the wheel of the new McLaren GT, their first Grand Touring car. But it's a bit different to most Grand Tourers. Mid-engine, proper, pro- proper McLaren in, in that in that regard. Um, but yes, uh, a different looking car. I think it's 
going to take a little bit of growing on me. I like all the McLarens, but this one is I'm not entirely sure on it, to be honest. Uh, I think it needs to be seen in a brighter colour, perhaps. Um, the dark red wouldn't really help it. But if it's a Grand Tour, that's technically the sort of colours they normally go for, or classic colours. We'll see it around a lot more. And judging by the weekend, we'll probably see it quite a lot this year. So, see. See, the one thing that I really did like about it is the colour. I think it's it's a different colour. It's it's not bold. It leaves. It stands out because it's so muted. And the reason it stands out is that the grid of cars that it's pacing have gone for primary colours for their livery this year. And it it does look good. It just looks different. I quite liked the colour and I'm not a fan of red. I know I have a limited back view of previous years because I'm still relatively new to it but I think it did its job and kind of was discernibly different to everything else out there. I do feel slightly sorry for for Lorna though I mean she's lost a hundred horsepower it's a 620 PS four litre twin turbocharged V8 so there's, there's enough poke there to pace a GT field and it's going to be fairly reliable as well we've had not in the McLaren years but we did have a situation a few years back when we had a Nissan Duke Nismo GTR um, as a safety car. It's the, you know, they put the body of a Nissan Duke on a shortened Nissan GTR chassis. Um, and unfortunately, it broke down on the way to Snetterton one year. And we had to borrow the Volkswagen Golf from, from Volkswagen Racing Cup. I don't think we're going to have that problem with, the, with this McLaren. Hi, I'm Angus Fender. I'm a McLaren GT3 driver for Two Seas Motorsport, and you're listening to the British GT Fans Show. So now it's time for our discussion of the weekend's racing at Alton Park. The way that we're going to do this is we are going to work through team by team and discuss the cars. We're going to start off with GT4, um, and we're going to start off with Academy Motorsport, who were in the number 61 Ford Mustang GT4 car driven by Jordan Albert and Matt Cowley. Yeah, it wasn't the best of weekends for the Academy guys. I mean, the Mustang last year um, kind of came out the box pretty strong at Alton Park. Uh, this year, it was running okay in the first race um, until it wasn't running okay and was instead trying to be a rally car on the grass down at, at Lakeside. Um, in the second race, it just really didn't rise to notice at all, really. It was um, a bit of a non-event. The second race for the Mustang was pretty uneventful. Unfortunately, they sort of finished last in class. They got some points on the board, which will obviously count towards the championship towards the end of the season. So moving up the rankings now, we move on to Speedworks Motorsport, who had the single entry car number 23, which was the Toyota GR Supra GT4, driven by Sam Smelt and James Kell. For the car's first meeting in British GT, they had a reasonably good weekend. Um, the retirement in the second race, I think, was due to a gearbox issue. Um, James Kell kept running down the Exit of Nickerbrook Chicane, kept skipping that, and then eventually retired. Race one, they got some um, a little good finish there, some 12 points, which is not a bad start for the season for them. One thing I did see about the car um, is, I don't know if anybody else saw this, it, the ride height is really quite high, which is, compared to the other cars, is very different. But um, for a decent, it's a decent start. We'll see how they go at Donington. 
Yeah, it's an odd duck, that car, isn't it? Um, it doesn't look... No, I'm going to say it. It doesn't look right. The wheels look too small, and obviously it's a... I mean, the design is open, but it's a spec wheel size, so Pirelli only have to bring one size of tyre. But I'm looking at a couple of the photos that I took of it now, and it, it seems very high and very long, but very narrow. Um, but it did all right. It performed really well in practice. Um, didn't have the rub of the green during the race and retired in race two. But what running it did, it looked respectable, and it is the first time out with that car, and Speedworks' first time in in British GT for quite a long time. Now, the other thing to consider here is last time they were in British GT, you couldn't have picked a much more different type of car to race because Big Banger Corvette versus Little Toyota Supra. It's a, it's a bit different, and it might take a little while to get used to the machine. So fourth in the GT4 standings is Balfe Motorsport. Here, of course, we're racing the number 21 car at the weekend, which is the McLaren 570S GT4, driven by Mia Fluitt and Ewan Hankey. I think this one is a case of bullet very well dodged. Now, Ewan was minding his own business in race one. Um, they'd completed the, the pit stops and Ewan was out on his outlap when he was come across by the Bentley. We're not 100% certain whether there was contact or the big bruiser of a Bentley scared the little McLaren off the racetrack. But if Ewan Hanke was a cat, he would have used at least eight of his nine lives because you don't drop it into a full 360 at Druid's Corner and not hit the wall very often. But that man's car control, spot on. Race two, um, again, bullet dodged. Uh, Mia got in the car, and I think everybody, they had a good lead, but I think everybody was expecting her to lose a couple of places because she's an am in a field of silvers. And she got in the car, got out onto the circuit, safety car came out and stayed out for the rest of the race. So double bonus for Mia, who becomes the second lady to win a win the gt4 class outright during the first race i saw them come out the pits after obviously the driver changed then they reappeared again i didn't hear that call on the radio so it wasn't until i actually watched the race back i realized they actually went through the gravel so i didn't actually i didn't realize they did that so to get um, some points just out of that they could have that could easily have been a very big accident for them so to get points out that was a good start and Obviously, the safety car did help the situation, but getting the win, race two, is a good start for their overall championship. Obviously, they won Pro-Am. So next up in the standings is Century Motorsport. Now, Century have got one full-season entry, which is the number 43 BMW M4 GT4, driven by Ben Hurst and Andrew Gordon Colebrook. And then there's also the race by race entry, which is uh, the Team Tagiwa entry, number 33, also BMW, driven by David Whitmore and Luke Sendjakovsky. First of all, the full-season car. Didn't really stand out to me. And I'll be honest and say that I can't recall where they even where they started or finished. It was another car to have there, but it, it didn't 
didn't reach my notice track side. The one that did is the 33, the Tajiwa car. And, okay, that probably met my attention more because that livery is a multicolored day-glow assault on the senses. It looks stunning. Um, but also, as I say, they were, they were new and interesting to me because they're a bit different to what we've seen before, and they had a good run. It's just a shame they didn't score points because, of course, being in a class of one, they were scoring top points all the way through. Last year, the um, 43 car had a much better run. I think after 2018, when um, basically both cars were up the top end of the championship and actually ended up winning, I think last year was a disappointment for the century. Um, was it Golden, Gordon Colbrook coming back for his second year, Ben Hurst swapping from Academy? A much better performance from the car. They had, was it sixth place in the first race and then they got a podium in the second. So it's a good start for their championship campaign. Yeah, the 33 um, actually surprised me with his performance being an AMM entry. Um, they were keeping up with the rest of the field. Considering it was their first proper British GT meeting with the car and obviously with the team as well. They've previously run it in a track attack at Alton Park for a test day um, preview event for them. It'd be nice to see them come back. Hopefully they get a few more outings this year rather than just the one plan so far. All right. The other thing to say, of course, about the Tajiwa car is that we previously reported that they'd run the GT4 car in Club Enduro last year. Um, I spoke to the guys at the circuit. Um, they were out on the on the viewing mounds after the first race. And um, apparently the car that they used to run um, was actually a, a car they built themselves to GT4-esque specification. So it was their first it was their first season in a GT4 car. You say they've done track attack to, to get used to the car. But track attack to British GT is one heck of a step up. So pretty impressive run from them. Second in the GT4 standings, we've got HHC Motorsport, who have two cars entered. First up, the 57 McLaren 570S GT4 of Chris Vesemail and Gus Bowers. And the 58 also McLaren with Patrick Matheson and Jordan Collard. First weekend for HHC, uh, the second full year with the McLaren. The 58 scored two podiums. Um, so I believe they're actually, Patrick and Jordan are actually top or near the top of the championship. The other car of the 57, both drivers are uh, reasonably new to the championship. So I think they're just getting a toe in. But for a first meeting of the year, it was, a, it was a good little start for them. Jordan and Patrick sit second in the championship. They scored 18 points twice, so that's two second places. Uh, they are the most consistent drivers at this early point in the championship. Um, Gus and Chris, they they did a little bit a little bit more. Um, they, they finished a little bit further down. 10 points and 12 points is going to be fourth in the second race and fifth in the first race um all i can say there is you can't win them all they looked good as hhc always do they look pretty quick as well but they're in strong competition in that silver in that silver cup class um and uh there's, there's not really a lot more you can say about it than that is there 
think it was a perfectly good result in respect of Yorkshire Day. Indeed. And they were drinking the right tea. They were. We were talking about it on Twitter. (laughs) So that brings us to the top of the team standings for GT4, uh, which of course just leaves one team left of TF Sport with the numbers 95 and 97 Aston Martin Vantage AMR GT4s. Uh, The 95, of course, driven by Connor O'Brien and Patrick Kibble. And the 97, Daniel Vaughan and Jamie Caroline. The wrong car is leading the championship here because at some point over the off-season, we have all tipped the 95 to win. And it's the number 97 that's leading the title. Jamie Caroline and Daniel Vaughan leading the Silver Cup standings on 40 points. Of course, they took the win in the second race. for their class, but they didn't take it overall. We've already said that Mia won that one. Uh, Mia and Ewan, of course, she didn't do it alone. Um, Patrick Kibble, Connor O'Brien took the took the class win in the first race, so had a strong start. And then, obviously, the second race didn't go particularly according to plan. I think we can discuss that in a bit more detail in GT3, aren't we? TF Sports Championship Defence. Couldn't really start much better with um, the 95 in the first race. Connor and Patrick had a really, really good race. They were off into the distance. It's just a safety car. Brought them back into, um, brought the rest in, back into contention. Obviously, the second race, things didn't go to plan for the 95, but obviously it worked out in favour of the 97 to give them the class win. It was almost a perfect championship defence uh, first round. So before we move on to GT3, any thoughts overall on how the weekend went in GT4? Was things as we expected them to be? Any surprises jumping out there? So I think the real surprise was the early early weekend pace of the, of the Toyota. But then we probably shouldn't be surprised by that because when new cars turn up in the championship, they're usually pretty swift until SRO get a, a grip on how they're going to perform and then the, the, the balance of performance, the dreaded bot, comes into play um it was a small grid it was well formed though um and it was turned out very well i say all the cars looked pretty good they obviously they sound lovely they 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 drive pretty well and on the whole they were they were pretty well behaved um in terms of obviously their own little races and and responding to track limits and this, that, and the other, but also they, that on the whole, they interacted well with traffic. Except for one, in, well, two incidents that we're going to discuss later on. Some good little battles in there, especially in the first race between the Mustang and the um, HSC McLaren and the 97 TF Sport Aston. See, this is the least amount of GT4 cars we've had for a while, but the, for the size of the grid, because of the situations we we all know about, the races were kept me entertained. I was obviously standing trackside. I was managing to keep up with um, everything going on, apart from things I wasn't hearing over the radio. It was uh, it was a good little first race for these and bring on Donington. So, how much do you guys actually hear, and what sort of additional information over me stood trackside with cameras and circuit commentary? Um. What what sort of additional insights are you getting into the race when you're on post? Everything I get is obviously through the 
post chief radio. Um, so I'm I'm hearing what the other post chiefs are saying from around the circuit. Because of the COVID situation, we were not given headsets, so I was having to listen to the radio over the the, the noises from the car, which did means I was missing things or not hearing things correctly, which is fortunately a situation. And being the post I was on, which uh, we didn't know where I was, I was on Avenue, which is literally five foot from a car going past me at 150 miles an hour. Um, so obviously it makes it very difficult to hear. Um, that post, though, did back onto a tannoy for the, for the commentary. So I was hearing bits and bobs through that. Um, I can't rely on the commentary because sometimes it's, it's, you can't, you don't hear all of it. I have to go what I hear on the radio and what I observe. And I also, to keep up with the race, I also make, I make a note of the car order and I sort of change it once I see positions change. So uh, it's something I've always done and I, it helps me keep an eye on the race. It obviously keeps, a, keeps an eye on the battles in GT3 and obviously GT4. And obviously I pass that information on to our flag, the flag marshal who help just in case he's lost or losing where people are. Because after the pit stops is always interesting. Um, once you've got driver changes and success penalties um, that kick in. What I will say, um, possibly slightly controversially, is the circuit commentary was and will be for the rest of the year most likely basically a tale of two cities. Um, I'll declare an interest up, up ahead here. I am a massive fan of Mark Wirrell, and I am a friend of Mark Wirrell. But Mark was researched, well-spoken. He knew what he was talking about. He could pronounce things. Titch was all over the place. Um, and to be honest, I was switching off when I heard him because I didn't know whether what I was going to be hearing was going to be well-researched or anything, um, whether he actually knew what he was talking about. He's, his, his standards have been slipping for, for, for a couple of years now, and I think it's time somebody took him to one side and said, look, you either need to up your game or we're going to need to find somebody else because it, it, it's getting to the point now where it's, getting very hard to follow a racetrack side when he's doing the commentary. In your opinion? In my opinion. But I don't believe I'm alone in that because um, TSL, the timing screen, also carries a circuit commentary. And there was somebody else in this conversation that was making similar comments. Although I didn't know who anyone was um, and the comment that I made, because obviously I was following along from home um on twitter all weekend so if you were following our feed that was me furiously typing um yeah how how how, how much do i owe you for new keyboards um <laughs> we'll talk about that later and to be honest on the saturday i ended up turning the commentary off and just watching the screens because obviously there was nothing broadcast because it really wasn't helping me follow I actually found it a lot easier just to follow what was going on on the screens. And I actually made the comment um, to Nick when we had a brief catch up that, you know, this doesn't draw me in as a viewer, um, especially if there's not anything, you know, visual to kind of watch. And I'm always hoping that that wouldn't be the case the next day because 
it'd be nice to to be able to kind of listen and see while I'm tweeting and and multitasking. So while I'm watching what I'm typing, I can't be watching what's happening. So I am relying on listening. And I was quite thankful to hear different voices on Sunday, to be honest. And I don't like being negative about people or things, but from the perspective of someone who is, you know, new to to this kind of racing you need something that someone that's engaging that's going to draw you in and I really struggled with that on the Saturday especially but I did very much enjoy watching the racing on Sunday. Now while Nick was at the circuit at Alton Park at the weekend he had the opportunity to speak to Dave Whitmore and Luke Sendikovsky of the Century Motorsport run Team Tagiwa car so we'll take a listen to that now. Hi, I'm here with David Whitmore from the team Tajiwa or Tajiwa. Team Team Tajiwa. Um, Tajiwa. Yeah, you have to excuse the mask if it's a bit blurred. Um, but uh, yeah, Team Tajiwa. But we're running with Century Motorsport this year, um, which has been a massive, massive thing for us. So yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's where we are so far. I knew we would. First time out in the BMW M4 GT4. We mistakenly reported um, earlier that it was a car that you'd raced in brick car. You've just told me it wasn't. You built that one yourself. How do you find the new car? It is. We thought, like last year, Luke and Tegua built that team, uh, that car, sorry, that Luke, uh, that M4. And we thought that we built it to GT spec, you know, like, obviously not the same suspension and stuff like that, but the night and day, I can tell you now that these GT4 cars built by BMW Motorsport are incredible. Handling-wise, incredible. It was an eye-opener to me. How much grip and how much braking I could do with this car. It's night and day. It is absolutely a pleasure to drive. And you stood here with a, a nice big pot and a, and a bottle from uh, the Calais Wine Superstore. Winners of the GT4 Ram class, of course, that was pretty much a given. Yeah. But we're just saying that you'd have won the Pro Am class if you were in that as well. So, how did the first race go for you? It was amazing. To be fair, we got here on Friday, uh, never driven the car, not experienced on slicks at all. Uh, as you know, we've always done uh, club racing uh, and done well in club racing. But to be fair, it's like when I started in club racing, it's like starting all over again. And it's been a dream of mine to drive in British GT. I mentioned before, you know, I couldn't even afford a ticket to come here in 1992. And then, you know, look and just being nice to people has got me to where I am today. And and I was having a little moment yesterday. I nearly cried in the car being a, a bit of a softie because it was just magical. You know, like, look, at, like speaking to you here now, this is a pleasure, you know what I mean? And motorsport's been a massive part of my life. And this, the race was brilliant. It, it was just, it's so hard. All British GT drivers deserve utter respect. I thought I was going to come here and do really, really well. And then it really opened my eyes. I'm just glad I'm on race pace, you know. And then we're just going to get better and better and better. We just need more seat time, uh, just like anything. Practice, practice, practice. But loved it, loved it. Do you have much testing planned ahead of your next appearance? Well, we've learned from this one, definitely. You can't just rock up and think you're going to see it go really well. But, uh, yeah, we're going to do two tests before Donington. Uh, we're doing the next one in Donington in September. Uh, we've only got enough budget to do, hopefully, three rounds this year. Um, but we're pushing for a full season next year so if we can do well this year you know and do a full season next year it'd be a dream but yeah two tested for Donington yeah that, that, that's the plan so obviously your stint went pretty well were you first or second in the car I was first in the car um, Luke's just turned up here look at this here uh, did you expect to get interviewed while you're walking around the circuit <laughs> uh, yeah so 
I was pressing the car. Uh, yeah, it was. The, the plan of action was just to hang on, you know, keep the race pace that we knew we had and hang on. Uh, we uh, got a 14 second benefit because we're the only am am in the, in the grid. Um, so if we can hang on, then that's a benefit to us. Um, and it, the car was just as it was all weekend, brilliant, you know what I mean? So, and I couldn't, every time, I had to concentrate because I kept having a little bit of a moment, you know, where you wanted to punch the air and go, come on, I'm in a British GT car. So I had to stop myself doing that a few times, but yeah, it was good, it was good. You really, really enjoyed yourself out there. I have, yeah, and I'll let you talk if I, if I can pop this in front of you, Luke, as well, because uh, I was watching towards the end, thank you. I was watching towards the end, and you you were holding off one of the TF Sport cars towards the end. Yeah. How, how, how was that final stint and the safety car complicating factors? Yeah, well, I obviously got into the car and uh, I just had to get to grips with it, try and get onto the pace that I knew I had that was um, just try and be consistent. And then when my uh, my crew radioed through and said, I've got a McLaren behind me, um, I was obviously desperate to keep that behind me. And then the safety car happened and then obviously the TF car behind as well. So yeah, it was brilliant just to be um, around those other cars and obviously the safety car helped group it up to make it a bit more exciting again. So yeah, can't wait for race two now. I get to start the race two. So uh, hopefully hang on to them and have a bit more fun. And now you've got your feet under you in British GT, hoping to move up spaces into the first corner. Well, yeah, definitely, definitely give it a go. Um, I always, whenever I'm racing, I always like to try and make the most of, uh, of a rolling start. So yeah, we'll just see what happens. You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. Follow us on the social media at BGTF Show. Don't forget to check out our partners. British GT fans on social media at Fans of British GT on Twitter and Instagram and British GT fans on Facebook. So let's move on and talk about uh, the GT3 teams. Starting off, let's go with Team Parker Racing, who at the end of the first weekend of racing are at the bottom of the table with their single entry, the number 66 Bentley Continental GT3, which was driven by Nick Jones and Scott Malvin. Rewind two weeks, and we are previewing Alton Park, and I'm saying that Nick Jones is a safe pair of hands and Scott Malvin is a proper pro. Um, Scott was involved in this one in some sort of altercation of... Maybe there's contact, maybe there was not, with the number 21. We discussed that in the GT4 segment. And the only reason we didn't have a very damaged McLaren is the fact that you and Anki can apparently see the future and save a car that's... His talent at saving that car was similar to Mark Marquez's talent in saving a bike that's already fallen over. Um, and then in race two, Nick Jones had a bit of an issue. And when I say a bit of an issue, it took out three cars and basically closed down half the circuit. Uh, <laughs> so prediction did not pay off. When it was going, it was going okay. It was running towards the back, but we're talking silver-silver pairings mainly, uh, or experienced pro-ams in GT3. Nick and Scott are... It was their first time running a GT3 car in anger, so you weren't expecting them to be running at the front. But there was an issue for each driver in one or, one or other of the races, which showed that there are some cracks, I think. I wouldn't say cracks. I think it was just it was their first week, proper say, race weekend with the new car. 
obviously stepping up from GT4 to GT3. I know Scott's been doing a lot of testing. Nick's had a few tests with the car. It's getting used to it. Orn Park probably doesn't suit the Bentley too well. Um, big old car, very thin circuit. It's a, it's a bit of a beast to go around there. The first race, and for say forty, I know they got one point. I think it was just it's just, again it's a silver or silver silver driver versus Pro Am. This car not perhaps suiting the circuit. And then obviously the second race, which I'm sure we're about to have a nice little chat about now, is uh, what happened with Nick getting involved with the '95 TF Sport Aston GT4. I do think race one started the problems in race two because you were looking through the, the the paperwork of the meeting earlier and you pointed out that Scott received a grid penalty, which he served in race two for an infringement under yellow flags. Now, they're already starting further back than they should have done and they didn't have a stellar first race. The pressure was on and that would have contributed to a greater sense of urgency and slightly less caution that may have been that may have been warranted i think the incident um this is from my point of view where i was on circuit i was watching them come past me i saw nick go down the inside of the aston i followed them to, to directly in front of me and as i started to turn him back towards up the circuit from my view i heard the thud turn around and went oh dear, that's gone very badly wrong. Um, I was really? More you used ch- those exact words, did you? No. <laughs> Family-friendly family friendly show, so I'm not going to say it. Um, I was more worried about what the Bentley was doing because it wasn't slowing down and over the grass. It wasn't until it got halfway through the Foster's cut-through that it finally slowed down. I had visions of it going straight through, straight to the other side of the circuit where Nick and his lops is. I was really worried that it was going to hit something over there. I completely missed the wheel off the 95 Aston hitting the McLaren because obviously then that, that then spun off at Shell. She obviously then went down to the, caused even more chaos with the cars getting collected on the safety car. And that's why the race never got re- restarted again. So from the point of view of watching it on the TV, um, even kind of listening to the commentary, you'd still had more clue as to what had actually happened than anyone else because there was a good kind of two or three minutes of that can't all be connected. You know, you've got three cars in, in three separate areas of the circuit. What What is happening? And it took quite a while to actually piece together what had happened. It had been completely missed initially on the cameras um, and it was only kind of coming back and piecing it together. I mean, from my perspective it was very very fortunate no one was hurt see i didn't realize that the mclaren was actually hit by the tire until i actually watched it the next day back on the footage i just i thought he managed to get through and i knew that i knew of the car being off up at shell i didn't know why it was off at shell um again the issues with trying to listen through the radio against the cars it's a bit difficult to hear everything that was said and so it wasn't until I say I watched it back on the actual YouTube, and I went, "Oh, oh dear!" I was very unlucky for the um, number nine McLarens. I was shooting at Britons uh, when all this kicked off, so I had no view of anything. And all of a sudden, there was a red McLaren on track where there was not a red McLaren before, and we were trying to figure out what was missing. Um, 
but having watched it back on the TV, I mean, first of all, I can't remember whether it was the 96 Optimum car or the number 10 2Cs car, but Nick Jones, having said what I've said so far about him, and I mean, none of us have expressed an opinion on this one yet, um, but having watched it, my opinion is that, I mean, it was a racing incident thrown through, but there were contributing factors. Um, one of them being that uh, Conor O'Brien opened the door for the Bentley and to let the Bentley through. GT4 drivers are told, stick to your line, let the faster car get past. So there was something not normal going on there. And then the fact that Nick Jones is not familiar with the Bentley, uh, as familiar with the Bentley. Last time he raced, he raced in a car that was a better part of half a metre narrower. And the steering wheel was on the other side. Uh, the Bentley is the only GT3 car, which is right-hand drive, which meant that Nick was on the other side of the car. So he could have just misjudged the gap between him and the Aston Martin, and that could have been the cause of it. But as you said, he, he carried on going down the Cascades and then cut through the, um, the Foster's cut through. And he did the best job in the world of getting that car slowed down. Otherwise, he was either going to destroy Optimum's chances or take out both two C's uh, McLarens in one accident. Um, I don't know many drivers that have actually managed to get that stopped after an impact like that. See, when the original incident happened, obviously, as I just said a, minute, a couple of minutes ago, it was um, I followed the cars past me then started looking back the other way. I believed that the Aston was letting the Bentley through and there was more than enough room. Watching it back on TV, there seems to be enough room for the Aston, uh, for the Bentley to squeeze through. Obviously, things happened and it hasn't happened that way. If I was down on Cascades reporting the incident, which is, the reporting spot was just underneath the camera position, if I'd have caught that, I would have reported that as a racing incident. Because it was obviously a GT3, which is seven to ten seconds a lap quicker around that circuit than a GT4 car coming down there. It's without seeing above the brow of the hill to see what was going on before. It's very difficult to say what happened there. So it was if I was if I was down Cascades, I would have said that was definitely a racing incident. There's been no reports about it other I've checked through from the clock of the course. So I've been believe that's been put down as a racing incident, unless I'll hear something different. Obviously, we'll report on that some other time. Next up in the team standings then is WPI Motorsport. Now, they were here at the weekend with the number 18 Lamborghini Huracan GT3 Evo, driven by Michael Igo and Dennis Lind. Very disappointing weekend, I would say, for these uh, for WPI. They were... The years worth of experience with the Lambo that they first entered last year in at Snetterton. And as we said before in the preview show, um, we've they were out testing and racing with the car at Snetterton beginning of July. Um, no points in the first round, only two in the second. Um, it was just a whole, it didn't really work out for them. I was speaking with Al Roberts, who's the team chief Odd to him on Saturday evening. They're having a few technical issues, especially non testing on Friday. There's a suspension issue. So I believe that probably sort of put them on the back burner a bit. 
from what I saw in the race two, um, Dennis Lind, I think, forgot he wasn't driving a virtual car. He seemed to be pushing, from my point of view, he seemed to be pushing the Jensen Team Rocket RJN McLaren of Michael O'Brien round the Cascades, which then I think didn't help him further round. Then he was in, later involved in another incident with the ABBA Merck, which he actually got a penalty for. So it was, overall, it wasn't a very good weekend for them. You know, I mean, Michael did as Michael does. He got in the car and he drove it as quick as he could and he kept it clean. Dennis, I was disappointed by Dennis this weekend. He wasn't up to... He wasn't up to even... I've been out of the car for four months and I'm rusty standards. He was he wasn't driving like a factory pro at all, was he? Driven it with Michael at um the GT open round at Snet. I'm sure he's been doing some other testing for Lambo because he's obviously a Lambo driver. I'm sure he's been doing some other driving. It was just I think it was a small circuit in a pack. Um it's it just didn't really work it. I say it was not didn't really work out. It's just it's in a whole Disappointing weekend, and hopefully Donington, which tends to suit Lambos. Dennis had a good meeting there last year. So fingers crossed that Donington, they'll be getting a lot better. From the discussions that we'd had kind of prior to the start of racing, it's certainly a name I was expecting to tweet once or twice, and it <coughs> never really came up. Yeah. The other thing that has literally just popped into my mind to consider here, though, is WPI, I mean, obviously they are now Lamborghini Squadra Corsa back team. So they have access to the collective experience of the factory, which means they have some access, and I don't know what sort of access, to data generated by Barwell, because Barwell are also a Lamborghini Squadra Corsa back team. But it's their first time racing that car on that circuit. in British GT spec. Because, of course, the balance of performance is different for GT Cup than it is for British GT, so it might be the same chassis, but it's a different car. Last year, they raced the Porsche. Yeah, but Michael Michael had been doing a lot of testing with, since lockdown lifted for track days. He had driven a lot at Orn Park. I've had some sneaky photos provided to me by a photographer that shall remain nameless. He was there an awful lot with that car. He's done an awful lot of testing, so he should be that. they should be used to that circuit. There is a very, very substantial difference, though, and I'm sure we all appreciate this, between being a Lamborghini GT3 car on a track day surrounded by even Lamborghini Huracan Performantes or Ferraris or blokes in their Mitsubishi Lancers or, or whatever turned up for a track day and being on one of the narrowest, bumpiest, twistiest pieces of competitive tarmac in the UK, surrounded by 23 other top-class drivers in top-class cars. You can test all you want. It doesn't prepare you for racing. So in joint eighth in the standings, we have AF Corsa UK. And they were in the Ferrari 488 GT3, driven by Duncan Cameron and Matt Griffin. Um, 
disappointing first race, only two points, which means ninth. Um, I mean, the car looked good. It sounded good. All the things we usually say about a GT3 car, and especially one where it's the only car in the field. Um, and it showed some pace in places. But like I say, first race just did not go their way. And second race, I think they were in the bath before the pit window opened, weren't they? Yes, I believe so. They had contact with the um, the Speedworks Toyota, which caused a uh, left rear suspension issue. Right, yes, I, I, I do remember that now. And that, of course, took the Toyota out as well, didn't it? Yeah. No, the Toyota retired a bit later on with um, some other issues. Yes, it was um, left rear track rod end or something like that, wasn't it, that went? <laughs> Which is just unlucky. Um, I mean, these cars are designed for banging wheels unless you bang them in just the wrong, just, just the wrong angle. They could take a lot of different forces, but there's not that force. The contact was, wasn't heavy. It was, um, he was going down the inside of the Toyota into Nickerbrook. I think it was just the angle that just must have popped something or just sort of deranged something which they couldn't fix could be in the drive shafty area of the car. So it doesn't really, they couldn't really fix it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not so certain that it was the angle. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing because it was a wheel to wheel impact and these suspension components can usually take a wheel to wheel impact. I think the problem here was the speed difference because it's hitting front on and then being dragged across and that would break the component, at least to my my engineering mind, which is, okay, I think I hold that end of the spanner. Um, brain the size of a planet I do not have. Um, but it's an unlucky one. Um, and then the other thing to say is, it's an unlucky one, but did did the AF Corsa guys need to put the car in that position? Could they have waited until the straight and got past? It was into a braking zone. I saw the flag marshal on Nickerbrook Ing, and he was pretty good with his blue flag all weekend. I don't think it was that situation. I think it was just it was just unlucky. It was James Kell, at the time, who not doesn't have most experience in British GT. Um, so I think it was just unlu- it was an unlucky situation. In seventh place in the standings, we have Team Abba Racing. Now they had the number eight car entered, which is a Mercedes AMG GT3, being driven by both Neary's father and son combo, Richard Neary and Sam Neary. It went okay. Uh, being a pro am, obviously not going to really challenge the silver silver too much. They come over four points. As I touched on before, the second race, they sort of got kiboshed by the um, Dennis Lind in the um, Lambo. So unfortunately, that sort of ruined their second race. I don't think that we could have expected the Mercedes to be, or the ABBA Mercedes, to be particularly strong at Alton Park, because Alton Park is a circuit where all of the benefits of the Evo kit would show themselves the most. And as we have previously discussed, for many reasons, and uh, it's not for me to say whether they're right or wrong, but for, for many reasons, 
um, Richard has decided that he's not going to upgrade his car to the latest specification. Um, so he doesn't have those benefits. Um, it wasn't out of place. Um, and it had it had some good little dices with the Bentley and some good little dices with the Ferrari over the course of the weekend. Um, I think it's just, as you say, a pro-am effort in a field of silvers. And where Sam is the pro, you can't really put Sam at this point in his career on the same page, so it was the same, same, same part of the page as your Yelma Bermans and your Phil Keens and, um, and that sort of thing. I was speaking with Sam um, after the second race on the Sunday. Um, he Evo kit around Alton Park, according to him, was giving the Ram racing about four tenths a second over the lap. And the way the homologation rules work, they've currently got the same BOP as the Ram racing cars as well. They, they don't get any let off of being an older car, so they've got to deal with that situation as well. Yeah, I think it was the best they could have hoped for there. You'll probably find that the older Mercedes is stronger at a different circuit. I guess possibly even Donington Park. So in sixth place after the weekend with six points, we've got JMH Auto, who were in the number 55 Lamborghini Huracan GT3 Evo, driven by John Seal and Marcus Clutton. First of all, Welcome back, because we weren't expecting you. The news broke very, very late that John and Marcus were coming to Alton Park. In fact, it was almost a case of he decided on Thursday and chucked the car in the trailer uh, <laughs> because it 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 wasn't there, there. There wasn't a lot of time to break that story before we were writing about his first practice. And so, six points only scored in the second race. Didn't score in the first. As I suggested in the preview, not troubling the top spots at all. But that car was, at the hands of, of Marcus Clutton, that car was lightning quick at the start of the second race. And it turned it into a Lamborghini 1-2-3 at the front of the start of the second race. The old Mercedes didn't have a lot to answer to it. Um, of course, Marcus is a, a pro at the circuit. Um, he does um, driver instructing and, and ards and this, that and the other at Alton Park. So he knows the place better than he knows the back of his hand. And that really showed. I don't know whether we're going to see that car as strong at the next round. In the first race, um, when Marcus took over the car from John, he came out just in front of the leader. Uh, it was a case of like, oh, he might need blue flagging. But actually, he pulled a gap on, um, which ended up being the um, Ram uh, Rocket Button car, and he actually pulled away. So he he his experience of being the circuit pro. Obviously, he's a former British GC champion as well. That sort of showed through. Second round, as as Nick was saying, they had a decent start of the race, and the sort of um he kept going as long as he could before he handed out to John. But obviously, then the safety car came out, so that sort of kept them in a decent point scoring position for them. But one thing that sort of came out before the race in the press release about them doing Alton Park was 
they're undecided about the rest of the season. So I'm not too sure if we're going to see them for the rest. Even though they did put a full season entry list in, I'm not entirely sure if we're actually going to see them yet. They might do it race by race, race by race basis, but we'll see. A big jump points wise now as we move into the fifth um, place team in the standings. Two Seas Motorsport are next, uh, currently with 27 points across the two races with two cars, the numbers nine and 10. Both McLaren 720S GT3s, the number nine being driven by Angus Fender and Dean McDonald, and the number 10, Jordan Witt and Jack Mitchell. The first race for two Cs went really um, well for the number nine car, went really well. It had a third spot with Angus and Dean. Number 10 car had two penalties, one for too short a pit stop. Then when it came back in for its drive through, then sped in the pit lane. So he then got another penalty. And obviously, in the second race, we sort of touched on a bit already. It's uh, the number nine got messed, uh, mixed in with the the Bentley and Aston incident, which caused him to um, spin off and not finish the race, where the number 10 had a much better, uh, much better showing in the second race. Yeah, it was about what we expected here when I recalibrated my mind to the fact that new doesn't necessarily mean inexperienced um i say the the jack mitchell jordan wick car uh had a fairly strong second race those two penalties that's just getting used to the rules of the series i think um although i will point out that the other car didn't suffer that problem um the McDonald and Fender car. It, it was going to be a strong, a strong effort until million to one shot. He avoided the Aston Martin that was swinging off the track and didn't realise that his wheel was loose. You get hit by fifteen, twenty kilos of wheel and tire, and probably a bit of suspension built in there, and this and other as well. Doesn't matter what your race car's made out; it's going to do some damage. And it was just unlucky that. The the a they connected and b that it did the damage that it did, which meant that Angus couldn't control the car down at Shell Oils and he became beached. Also, considering this was um, the number ten car, the drivers only got announced a couple of days before the event, and obviously Jack Mitchell should have been driven driving for Beachstein and Aston Martin this year. Obviously, with Beachstein changing their plans, that hasn't happened. Um. Both, I think both the time they first drove the car was on the Friday testing. So to come into a brand new car, brand new team, to come away with a fourth position in the second race, probably better than they're thinking of it and get out of the weekend. Just, it's just those penalties that in the first race that cost them. Yeah, the other thing I will say, and of course, as a photographer, I am focused on the visual. The photos don't do those cars justice. Oh. Dear Lord, I when I first saw the 720S in Balf trim, and you're not going to like this, Andrew, but I've got to say it, never a fan of the look of that car. I thought it was very plain. The two C's motorsport cars are gorgeous. Print them off massive size, stick them all over my walls. I'll be a teenager again with supercar posters on my bedroom wall because it's beautiful. I think it'll be interesting to see how two C's go on through the rest of the season because taking into account kind of the 
things that they've had to deal with this weekend and still to come out with the points that they did, I think they're definitely going to be strong contenders and up there. Just my Most definitely. They're, they're, they're definitely going to be up there. I think any take, take your pick of any McLaren team this year, any any team, I think, any, especially McLarens, which one's going to finish top, you never know. Yeah, and I don't know what 2C's plan was when they announced this in February, whether their plan was to build a reputation as one of the front-running teams in British GT or whether their plan was to run in British GT for, GT for a year to get their name out and then throw in an entry for IMSA or something like that. Um, but they're supposed to be doing GT World Endurance as well, if I remember correctly. They were due to run a, a, a dual program, yes. Um, I think the current situation has turned any program that was one year long into at least a two-year program because this is not the sort of time you want to go muddying the waters by jumping into different championships and and this, that, and the other. So I'm hoping... And this is very early in the season to be saying this, but I am hoping we see them back next year. And when they do come back next year, if I am correct, I reckon that Farwell, TF Sport, all of them are going to have their hands so full trying to keep their McLarens behind them. It's going to be unreal. So in fourth place in the standings, we've got Optimum Motorsport. Uh, just a single entry at the weekend, which is the 96 McLaren 720S GT3, driven by Lewis Proctor and Ollie Wilkinson. Race one went pretty well for them. They had the pole um, just ahead by one thousandth of a second. And it was a good, it was going well for them. They had the lead. Um, it was just a small mistake that let Michael O'Brien pass. Second race, obviously with the success penalty for finish on the on the podium in the first race, sort of knocked them back a bit. And that was, but for twenty eight points after one after one meeting to their championship campaign. So this is the reason standings are cars out of position. Uh, um, in terms of the second race, and those success seconds are designed to play out and balance across an entire race but we only got about 31 32 minutes of actual racing out of race two so it didn't have time to play itself out um which is why that car's sitting where it is uh that being said of course they must have the wrong shade of papaya on the car because everybody that followed fernando alonso's failed attempt to qualify for the indy 500 last year knows that it was a shade of papaya that was wrong and that was why the car was slow it matches the F1 card now, and the F1 card's going all right this year. So, <laughs> See, they've ordered, they've ordered the right paint this year. That's why it's going faster. That card does look pretty good. Um, I like the livery on it, and I say, I'm, I'm glad to have Ollie Wilkinson back to defend his title. And, and Lewis, Lewis didn't look like a first-year GT3 driver when he was driving it. Um, so he's got up to speed pretty damn quickly as well. Um, I think we're looking looking forward to to other things later in the, later in the championship, and of course, with the fifth place at the, at the second round, they won't have the success seconds to serve at Donington Park in the first race. 
In third on the leaderboard is our highest ranking single car entry of Jensen Team Rocket RJN with the number two McLaren 720S GT3 driven by James Baldwin and Michael O'Brien. And I assume we're going to have some things to talk about on this one. Yes, first of all, um, of course, being a one-car entry, third place in the team's championship. But if you look at the British GT3 Drivers' Championship, Mr. PlayStation Gamer, or iRacing, or whatever it is that he did his, uh, his virtual stuff on, is the top name on the championship table. Um, obviously on equal points with Michael O'Brien, but at the moment, James Baldwin is listed as the top man on the table. And he did pretty well, obviously did very, very well, winning on debut and winning on debut in, in GT racing, let alone in, in GT3. Um, the car was very well presented. I do like the livery on that car. I think it suits the McLaren a lot better than it suited the Acura or, or Honda that it was on last year uh, in World Challenge. Of course, that is rather than in British GT. We know Michael O'Brien's a good peddler. Um, we were looking forward to another year of him in GT4. We are now treated to him in GT3, which is which is good to see. And James Baldwin was was a bit of a revelation. Um, I don't know really what we would have seen of them out of race two if we'd got a full stint of James because he's uh, pretty quick for a newbie. First race couldn't go any better for them if they tried. It was just the way it worked out. It was James made a decent start, had got himself in a good position. And when Michael O'Brien took over, he's had some experience with GT3 testing for Balf with their cars. And then obviously managed to sneak past uh, the uncle, according to Michael. Um, then just this bit off the distance and perfect race win. Race two. Obviously, didn't really start well. Uh, they went wide, possibly with a little altercation with the WPI Lamborghini. And when he came back on, he almost got whacked by about three GT4 cars. It was a very, very close situation going on there. But after that, he was the fastest McLaren on the circuit. And then obviously handed over to James, but obviously then the safety car. It was a pretty clumsy rejoin, uh, all things considered. Uh, whether he was helped or not, uh, he went wide at Ireland, took to the grass, and rejoined pretty much on the apex of Shell Oils. Now, Shell Oils is a banked hairpin, so it races a lot faster than the circuit map suggests it should. And it was a first lap, and everybody was clustered together. Um, what he probably should have done was bring the car to a stop and join behind the GT4 traffic. It would have taken him a little bit longer to get through, but better that it takes longer to get through than the GT4 cars don't see you coming and you get T-boned. So that was... I don't, think, I don't think he would be able to stop the car because where he ran wide, it was on the grass. He wouldn't be able to get that car slowed down. It looked clumsier because the kerb on the inside of Shell is a very steep kerb. So it made it look a lot worse when he came back on. Steep kerb is pretty much a mountain. But it was just... I'd say it, it looked clumsy. Um, recovered well. This is about all I can say on that one. Recovered well from a poor start. Second on the leaderboard then, we've got Ram Racing with two cars being entered. We've got 
the Mercedes-AMG GT3s of Ian Loggie and Yelma Berman in the number six car and the 69 of Sam DeHaan and Patrick Jala. Overall, it was a pretty decent first round for Ram. Had a fifth and a sixth in the first race and then had a podium position in the second race. Um, only really a penalty for the number six for a too short a pit stop, ruining them having the third, fourth in the second race. The Evo first time at Elton Park. I believe the BOP might have been a bit low from what I've overheard from rumours. So it wasn't really going to challenge the McLarens or the Lamborghinis. But for, for the first race of the season, they did all right. And um, they'll, they'll, they'll definitely be challenging for outright race wins and championship going throughout the season. One of the entries is Pro-Am. The other one is Silver Cup. Despite that, they were very well matched and the two Mercedes spent much of both races hunting as a pack. Um, they were outclassed by by the Lamborghinis in, in the second race. But then no shame in that because so was everybody else. Um, again... I do love I, I love the revised livery on on the Sander Hang car, uh, more fluid, and obviously he's he's taken the opportunity to to take on the cause of diversity, which is which is close to his heart. Um, so there's quite a focus onto that on his livery as well. But the two cars they look they look pretty good. Um, they're bright enough. You you're, you're going to struggle to miss them. Um, and and like I say, they they, they look to be Pretty pretty solid machines that have with driver driver lineups are very well matched despite the fact they're in different classes. It surprised me a bit. Ian drove for the team last year and um obviously years of experience with the car, with the team, I think helped the situation. Yelma obviously drove for ERC Sport back in 2018. So he was a, he does know the circuits as well. Yeah, having Yelma back is obviously a Merck Pro driver. That's obviously good for our championship. Sam DeHaan, obviously last year was actually an AM driver. With the driver ratings, he's now been made a pro. Kujala coming back to the championship again. And of course, he, um, what you said about Sam DeHaan being upgraded. If you go back to our listener Q&A and we ask questions about these driver gradings, uh, Sam DeHaan and Johnny Cockle won Pro-Am last year. They won the championship, and they are automatically upgraded as a result of that um, because of British GT being a recognised championship. There's there's no discretion on this one. He won the championship, FIA, put him in the next class up. That means at the top of the standings then, we've got Barwell Motorsport, who are leading the way with 61 points from the two races. Uh, both Lamborghini Huracan GT3 Evos, the number 72 being driven by Adam Ballon and Phil Keane, and the 78 of Rob Collard and Sandy Mitchell. Yeah, it was um, a pretty good start to the season for them. Uh, first race, of course, they were outpaced by the McLarens, um, which I don't think anybody was expecting. But still, uh, the particularly the Collard and, and Mitchell car, 
managed to pull a decent result out of that. They got 12 points out of that. Um, Phil Keen, Adam Ballon, not quite so strong. They only took six points from the first round. Of course, Adam Ballon and Phil Keen in the Drivers' Championship are above Collard and Mitchell because they had the lead. They had to pole for, for the second race, got away cleanly um, and held off uh, Rob Collard at the start. And then it was formation flying, really. Um, the two ran like there was there was a very small piece of bungee cord tie between the two cars. Um, WP, sorry, not WPI. The JMH Lamborghini made it a Lamborghini one, two, three for a while as well before obviously people started moving forward and the, and the reshuffling at the pit stops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've got a theory that the win for Keane and Ballon wouldn't have happened if the safety car had stayed in the pit lane um, because as good as Adam Ballon is, he is a bronze driver. Both the drivers in the number 78 are silver drivers and you're not going to get things like team orders in customer racing saying no he's got the lead we're not under threat so you stay where you are um obviously all these guys with the exception of phil are paying a substantial chunk of change to barwell so that they can go racing and barwell is not going to tell people that are paying them a large chunk of change that they can't go racing so I don't think there would have been much reprieve for Adam Ballon if race action had got back underway. I was really looking forward to the battle in race two after the pit stops when obviously with Phil and Sandy doing the first in, built up a nice little lead. Obviously Rob, yes, is a silver driver, but his first time racing in British GT. Adam, obviously being a, the AM driver, but has had a couple of years' experience. I was intrigued to see how the silver, silver cars we're going to catch up with these two. And if we've got a bit of a battle going towards the end, um, the safety car ruined that completely. Um, so unfortunately, we, I reckon they could have been much closer at the end there. And it's a shame we missed out on it. The Lambo does seem to suit Bourne Park, the tight, twisty car, mid, mid-engine car. So that's the team standings as they are currently. Uh, Again, as we did at the end of the GT4 section, any standouts in this particular weekend of racing? Uh, were things as they expected? And what's your top highlight? Right, standout for me. I mean, standout performance. Everybody said it, but I'm going to say it as well. James Boulder and Michael O'Brien. I did not expect that. And very impressive it was indeed. Uh, my highlight. My highlight's actually a low light because that accident in race two, I'd rather not see any cars damaged and, and the risk of people being hurt. But that was just the strangest thing. I've seen some strange things at the racetrack, but that was that that was weird. That was up there. Um, I think that particular incident is going to be in all the the YouTube videos of, you know, most amazing accidents to happen at a racetrack. And I think it's going to be in all those videos for a long time. 
because it was just nobody could have predicted what happened. Pick on the standout. Um, having Baldwin and O'Brien, the brand new teams in championship, race win and come away with the driver's lead. No one, I don't think anybody expected that. Apart from me in our season preview, which I got laughed at about, didn't I, Nick? Stop with the smugness. <laughs> um, a highlight, really, was the fact we were back racing. Obviously, we've all waited a long time. It's been a long time since March and Media Day. And again, it was obviously the original plan to be back, finally back out on what was an, a very nice weekend at Orton Park. Decent weather. That's all we really wanted, back racing. Good, close, mostly close, close clean racing. Lots of battles. We're back, we're back and roll on the next round. Sarah, what was your highlights of the weekend? I was actually going to ask Sarah what was her opinion of her first British GT weekend? Because you saw more of it than most of us. There were definitely quite a few spectacular moments. There were some good battles going on, um, especially the start of the second race. Um, third, fourth and fifth were having it out for quite a way, um, which was probably actually my highlight. Yeah, they were... Uh, did you see Marcus Clutton banging wheels with Yama Berman? Because it was right opposite you, Andrew that they actually banged wheels on their way down to Cascades on the first lap. It was remarkable. First lap, I remember being the, the, I remember them being a lot closer than the first race. I was like, oh, this is a bit, they're a bit more, oh, here we go, they're a bit more challenging. No, they, they've got two weeks to repair the cars. Definitely giving a bit more go in the first, in, in the second one. Um now you mention it, I sort of vaguely remember the banging, but it was a case of like first corner shenanigans or first first lap shenanigans. Nothing that I needed to report on. Yeah, that that start, it's finally clicked in my head why the AMs start the first race on a two-race weekend. Because if you leave it to the pros to start the first race, the AMs won't have a car to drive at the end of it. That comment was made by somebody in the pit lane. Um, it shows why they have the worst start with the pros. So that was actually... So people agree with you, Nick, for once. But, I mean, fair play to Marcus. He saw a gap and he went for it, but... Hi, I'm Michael O'Brien, professional racing driver for McLaren, and I'm delighted to be joining the guys on the British GT Fan Show. Go and check them out, and uh, yeah, you won't be disappointed. And be sure to check out British GT Fans on Facebook and Fans of British GT on Instagram and Twitter. Their attention obviously moves to the upcoming weekend's racing, which is at Donington Park. Uh, let's have a chat about this, which cars are going to favour the circuit. And we've also got the difference in races. We've not got two one-hour races coming up. So let's have a chat about that. Yeah, different format for, for the first time in British GT. We've got both an endurance and a sprint format race on the same day. Um, now, obviously, the second race of the day, round four of the championship, is not going to favour a car which is light on its tyres. Uh, as much as the two-hour endurance race does. 
um, because obviously one driver doing an hour stint rather than a 30-minute stint, they, stint, they've got to look after their rubber more in the longer races. Haven't got that to worry about in, in, in the fourth round of the championship. It's going to be interesting to see what that does and, and how it changes the attitude of the drivers going into, the, into that race. It, it might be a bit more doors banging, etc., because they've got three weeks in to repair the cars as well. In the first race on the Sunday, being the traditional two-hour format race we normally get for Donington, um, so it'd be nice to go back to the um, slightly longer race. Obviously, the success penalties are going to sort of um, affect Barwell quite a lot. Um, obviously, the Phil Keen and Adam Badon, and then obviously taking the longer twenty-second penalty for their class win, and then uh, the silver car taking the fifteen-second penalty. That's going to throw a few little spanners in the works for them. The one-hour race, again, it would probably follow similar to what we had at Orton Park. Good little battles everywhere. Nice quick nice quick sprint race, which will seem will probably fly past compared to the two-hour race we have earlier in the day. Probably going to be a McLaren circuit if we compare it to last year. Lambo's been up there as well depending on if any BOP adjustments as well, because obviously being in the second round, we normally, obviously, BOP follows the international SRO rules, but they can be adjusted daily and up to 90 minutes for a race um, under the series organisation rules for British GT. So, and there's a GT4. Um, again, I could probably assume that TF Sport will be up top, and it'd be interesting to see how well the Speedworks Toyota goes around here. Um, don't think they've tested the car at Donington yet, so it'd be good for them to see, how, see where they go with that there. Yeah, but Speedworks know Donington like um, Speedworks know Donington like I know McDonald's menu. <laughs> they've been there. Front wheel drive versus rear wheel drive is going to be a completely different idea. So, yes, but once you've got an idea of the correlation of how things differ from front-wheel drive to rear-wheel drive. So you know that in a front-wheel drive, if you do X change, it has this effect. And if you do the same change in a rear-wheel drive car, it has Y effect. Then, there, I mean, if they were that, that quickly on the pace at Alton Park, I don't think it's going to take them too long to get their head around Donington Park with the knowledge that the team has of running some sort of car at that circuit. I think they might actually be fairly, fairly pleased because I reckon a rear-wheel drive car is going to suit that circuit a heck of a lot better than a front-wheel drive car. The the GT3 cars that I think we need to be looking out for are the Mercedes. And as I said, I think we'll find that the number eight is closer to the battle pack at Donington Park than... The, than it was at Alton Park. I think the circuit will suit the older specification Mercedes more than than it did in the twisty, bumpy, uphill, downdale nature of of, of Alton Park. Of course, Donington's not flat by any means. Um, bring your walking boots if you're coming. But it's also a faster, more faster, more flowing circuit. Um, and in terms of the electronics upgrades, 
and and that sort of thing that went into the Evo version of the Mercedes. You're not worried about things like traction control and, and that sort of thing quite as much at, at Donington Park as you are at Alton. Alton's speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down. Whereas there's only a couple of major braking zones at Donington Park. I think it might suit the, the older car slightly more. One Sparrow possibly might be in the works this weekend is early weather reports suggesting that Sunday could be very thundery and rainy. So that will change things completely for everybody. And fingers crossed it doesn't happen. Um, but hopefully, I don't, yeah, I hope it doesn't happen. We don't want a wet race. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, no, we don't. I don't want a wet tent to put away at the end of the day. The older. Uh... Adding adding water adds excitement for the first for, for the first point. I mean, Bernie's plan to install sprinklers around Formula One circuits was a bit off the wall, but his basic premise was correct. Sprinkle on a bit of H two O, and, and races do get a lot more exciting. Um, and also, photographically, I love shooting a wet race. It's um, the colours are different, and the light is different, and the rooster tails make for more interesting photographs and things like that. So I, I might not like the effect of being soaked through to the skin, hiking around a circuit with cameras around my neck, but I do like the end result. So if you are looking to attend at the weekend, don't forget that you do need to have your ticket in advance. Um, they can be purchased right up to 4pm on Friday. Um, and we will be following shortly with our guide to the circuit. Hi, I'm Mia Fluitt. I'm a GT4 driver with Balf Motorsport and I'm happy to be joining the guys from British GT Fan Show. Please follow them on social media at BGTF Show. Obviously, for those who don't know, it's quite near a major airport, so there are some decent roads, at least in the vague area. But what is traffic like on route? What time should you aim to arrive at the circuit for? So... Donington Park is very close to the M1. It's at the junctions for East Midlands Airport, which are 23A and 24. What I will say with regards to the M1, a couple of years ago, um, they did some major works completely replanning Junction 24. So it now links into a link road, which serves the A42. It serves the A50, and it heads off into, into Nottingham via the power station as well. Um, your sat-nav may not know about the way the roads has changed, so keep an eye out for the road signs. If you do what I always do, despite the fact I drive it on a regular basis, and come off on the A50, no dramas. Uh, come off at the first junction, hang a left, and just keep following it until you get to the airport, and that will bring you back on track. And arriving to Donington, the normal track action starts around nine o'clock, uh, ten past nine for both days of British GT this this year. Uh, gates open at seven thirty in the morning, so it's probably advisable to get there between seven thirty and eight. As with the COVID um, some bobs, the chances are you can have a bit of a walk. The normal entrance may not be open to get you into the circuit, which normally takes you through the paddock. So I believe they're using the launch pad entrance, which is at around the back end of Redgate. If you can come in the main entrance, you have to turn directly right and go around the Melbourne Loop up to Goddard's and then under the under the tunnel to take into the centre of the circuit. And the coppice tunnel will be open as well for 
you to walk around and get around that end of the circuit as well. Traffic in and out. Luckily, in a Marshall, I've never seen it, on, obviously, in the circuit normally. What I will say with regards to the tunnels that Andrew mentioned, um, with the exception of one tunnel, which isn't usually open during a race weekend, they are quite narrow. I don't know whether they're going to be putting a one-way system in place um, using sort of two tunnels to put a one-way system through the infield and, and back out again. But if they're not, you will not be able to socially distance in there. So make sure you've got a face covering and please, unless you have a medical exemption, use it. I'm going to chime in here as well. Um, it is actually possible to get here without driving. There's a couple of options uh, you can get from Derby using the Skylink bus, which takes you through to East Midlands Airport and then drops you in Castle Donington Village. It is then a bit of a walk from there uh, of about a mile. Um, you can also get uh, a number of buses from Long Eaton as well, so you can connect from train. And East Midlands Parkway train station is fairly nearby, and there's a bus that runs straight through from there and basically passes the the other entrance to the venue not the not the vehicle entrance but the there's an entrance up by the airport parking like when you get there if you are driving um and from an accessibility point of view um do you have a long walk from the car parks or you know should we be fully kitted out in walking gear the main car park is a big grassy area which um is outside the main entrance of the circuit if it's a wet day it can be interesting getting off it because um, it is a, it's on a bit of a steep hill. Normally, the with the main entrance being normally open, you can walk straight into the paddock area. Not say normally. See, so if, if they're using the, the launch pad, you have to do a bit of a walk around the side. Donington being hilly is advisable to have a good pair of walking shoes, very comfortable trainers. If it's dry, if it's going to be wet, the roads are all the accessible roads are gravelled. Mr. Palmer spent some money. Make sure the uh, the facilities are up to standard, so you can actually walk around, no issue. Majority of the spectator areas are grass areas to stand on. There is down by the old hairpin. There is areas to stand, which is all gravel, and then um, staggered hills, so you can stand on there. If you go further around the circuit, there is another area up by coppice, which is um, the disabled parking is available up there. The infield particularly, um, it's kind of like Spa in that wherever you are, where you're going is going to be uphill at some point. Uh, the other thing to consider here is the fact that there are two grandstands at Donington Park and neither of them is particularly big. If they're putting social distancing in place, I'm guessing there's probably seats for less than 2,000 people. And if we're expecting over 5,000 people, that means a lot of people are going to be struggling to sit down. Um, there are picnic benches scattered around the infield, but there are not a million of them. So you might also want to bring some sort of folding camping chair or something. We're inside the circuit then. So what are each of your top three places uh, for actually watching the race and your top three places for taking photos? In the top obvious view for both um, situations is down at the old old hairpin. You position yourself on the bank. You see him coming all the way down Craner Curves, going around to Starkey's. You get some good shots with your camera down there because you'd be able to see over the top of the fence, if not just probably through the top of it. And a lot of the old hairpin is, gets known for 
bit of action down there. And if it's a wet day, a lot of action down there. Um, and up at McLean's, up at Coppice, there's good spots around there. You can see them coming up, and obviously around the track. Coppice is good because you see them coming up, up the hill, over the brow, and then going down the straight. And then probably down at the old Melbourne hairpin, um, when it goes, we were using the Grand Prix circuit, they have put more fencing in, which does limit um, the, some of the camera shots you can probably take, unless you zoom right in. You obviously, the car's coming down there. You also see that famous shot where people take off from the airport, the plane's taking off, you get the car and the plane in the same shot, which I think a lot of people tend to do. Um, so that, that's probably your best spots for you taking your pictures from. I am going to second the bottom of the Melbourne loop. But the first photo I ever took at Donington Park was a WRT Audi going up the hill and a plane coming the other way. And ever since I've been trying to duplicate that shot and I've yet to succeed. Um, so you do get some quite nice photos there. In terms of viewing opportunities, Andrew is bigging up uh, old hairpin and you, you can't really go much wrong with that. But what I would say is head to the inside of the circuit instead. There's a big mound that runs up through the inside and you, you, you get up on there somewhere. And then not only have you got old hall, sorry, old hairpin even, I'm getting my circuits mixed up, um, but you catch them through Hollywood and all the way down the Craner Curves. And the Craner Curves is the iconic bit of Donington Park. And then you follow them all the way out to either Schwantz or Starkey's, depending on which name you use. That one got changed as well. Um, so that's quite a good viewing location. And the final one for me um, is the other end of the Melbourne Loop. Um, there's some bankings up there. You can get yourself sort of, even if it's a wet day, you can get yourself wedged in under the ease of a toilet block. I'm making it sound very attractive, I know. Um, and with a nice sort of fairly long lens, you'll, you'll do all right with a 200mm lens uh, up to 400 you're getting some nice shots of them with the curbs coming through the chicane and heading down the Melbourne Loop. Um, so that, that's quite a good place to watch. Okay, so that does lead us quite well onto uh, kind of facilities that are available at the circuit. Uh, you mentioned the toilet blocks are not far away from there. What else have we got at Donington then? The bad side, the downside to Donington Park is that everything is centred around the paddock. Um, so the permanent restaurant is slap bang in the middle of the paddock. There is uh, garages to one side and the scrutineering area to the other. And all around it is working area on a race, on a race weekend. With the COVID-19 rules, that is closed to the public. So you probably won't be able to get to garage 39. Likewise, there is a small shop on circuit, but that is also in the paddock. So you probably won't be able to access that. Um, they do have um, a sandwich van or two, um, hot dogs, burgers, maybe a bit of hog roast, etc. Um, I'm guessing they'll position those in the infield and possibly down towards either Hollywood or the old hairpin. Um, if they're not going to be able to sell through their fixed restaurant, they're going to want to maximise any income from the from the circuit areas. And there'll be ice cream vans around, but it's going to be a little bit rustic, I think, is the best way to put it for for, for the foreseeable at Donington Park because, let's say, the one place that's set up for actual restauranting is in an area that's inaccessible to the public. 
So we've got a full weekend of action coming up um, on there now. Donington's quite central, so there'll be a fair few people who are able to commute. But for those who are wanting to make a weekend of it, um, obviously being quite near the airport, you'll have all the chain hotels around there. But what else is available for those who are wanting to stay over? Anywhere that you'd recommend? Um, and also on that front, anywhere to eat out kind of in for an evening? Those not wishing to stay, perhaps in the, like the big chain hotels, there's um, right next door to the circuit, there's the Donington Park Farmhouse Hotel, which offer, does also offer camping and the caravan site there, because Donington doesn't offer camping this uh, for British GT events. They only sort of offer it for touring cars or British superbikes. Obviously, those are not allowed at the moment because of the COVID situation. And there's various villages around the site. Um, around Donington, um, not even just Castle Donington, there's some small villages around there, plenty of B&Bs around, Airbnbs. I know people have stayed in a few Airbnbs around there. So you'd be able to find something within a budget, if you've got a low budget, big budget, you'd be able to find something to stay in that covers all that. For those staying close by to the circuit on the, uh, during the weekend, there is plenty of places to uh, for food in Castle Donington itself. That's the obvious place to go. On the main high street, you've got a uh, uh, nice Chinese, you've got a nice chippy that you'll see many marshals frequenting, um, especially me and probably Gaz as well. There's also an Indian on the high street. There's a pub uh, restaurant thing on the high street. There's other various pubs uh, located slightly around the middle of Donington. Again, being sort of middle area, you've got lots of little villages around. They all have pub-stroke restaurants in there as well. With the range of options available, you'll be able to find yourself a nice meal. Obviously, you can go down to the Donington service station uh, where you've got a Harvester and a Burger King and a Greg's. There's plenty. There's definitely plenty of options around Donington for for you to find something nice to eat. Right. Yes. You you say about Donington Park services. Of course, there is a harvester in there, and Burger King if you're after something quick and junky. Um, strangely enough, for me, I'm actually going to recommend something which isn't quick and junky, and isn't a truck stop either. Um, a wee while ago, we were at Donington Park for British GT. Um, and by we, I mean the crew at Checker Flag and a couple of the guys from Motorsport Radio. And we decided to go out for basically a team meal. And we're talking on the A6, somewhere between Hathorn and Zoosh area. Uh, there is a steakhouse come pub come dining drinking situation on the left-hand side as you come down there. And the food was astonishing. The service was great. And the price tag wasn't eye-watering. Um, so to be honest, I'd head out that way. Um, you're also, in terms of accommodation, etc., not too far away from places like Matlock, Matlock Bath and, and that sort of area. It's going to be 45 minutes, maybe an hour into the circuit. But you've got some nice places, a lot of good places to eat. Um, and being a little bit away from the venue in the airport, you probably find it's possibly slightly cheaper. And with the tourist situation being as it is at the moment, you might find that you're picking up some decent bargains because there's a lot of vacant rooms. So for those who aren't going to make a weekend of it and are close enough to commute, um, you might want to take a break on your journey. Nick, this is probably, again, your area of 
expertise, shall we say, given your day job. Possibly. Uh, where's good to have a break, uh, whether it's for something to eat or just to have a break, stretch your legs um, on your way back? Right, well, Donington Park is fairly central in the country. If you're heading south, it's the M1. There's lots of service areas down the way. If you're heading down past Northampton, a good place to break is Junction 16 of the M1. Come off there heading southbound, take the first left. And about two-thirds of a mile up, there is a, a turnaround in the dual carriageway. Take that right-hand turn, pull into the lay-by directly opposite you, and you'll come down to the Red Lion pub and truck stop. It is, again, aimed at trucks, but the food is pretty good. It's, it's very cheap. And for those of an adult persuasion, the beverages are both cold and reasonably priced. If you're heading out towards the Birmingham Way, you're going down the 42 and off to the M5 to get down to the south of the country and that sort of area. Again, mainly motorway service areas. On the way down, there is um, obviously Tamworth Services, which is basically the same fare minus the harvester that you've got at Donington Park. Um, if you're heading further on down, then Gloucester Services. If you remember for going north, I recommended T-Bay. Gloucester's owned by the same people. Um, so you don't need to go looking for something off track for that one. Heading over towards the west, you're on the A50 heading out towards the M6 northbound. Stoke-on-Trent, there's all the main chains around the stadium, which is where the A50 and the A500 meet. Um, so there's... There's a decent amount of options there for somewhere to eat. And heading towards the north east, up past Sheffield, up towards Leeds and Newcastle and that sort of area. Uh, really, I'll say go local. Sheffield is about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes up. And if you come off at 34, there's a large range of eateries. Um, large range of eateries if you hang a left uh, second exit of 34 there's a large range of eateries down there that you can visit from mcdonald's to tgi's and and other places around there so support sheffield those heading southeast using the a14 uh, as you come off junction 19 on the m1 first the first big area hit is kettering and just off there you'll see a big tesco's and there is a cinema there and you'll see a couple of restaurants like kfc Slightly further, a half hour further on, you get into Huntingdon um, area, and just not far off the A14, there's a um, near the Tesco's in Huntingdon. You'll find a area which has got a Nando's, a McDonald's, a KFC. So there's various spots you can stop going that way. Been about an hour and a half for leaving the circuit. Don't forget, if you are going through that way towards Huntingdon that there has been major, major changes again on the road network around Huntingdon for the A14. It's a fantastic new piece of road, but your sat-nav has not got a clue where you're going. So that's how we go to Donington Park. If you've got any recommendations or suggestions, then let us know on our social media and we'll get them shared with people. And likewise, if you've got recommendations for future circuits that we're going to be going to, Drop us a message at, at BGTF Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Let us know and we'll make sure we include them. So that wraps up this episode of the British GT Fan Show. 
Don't forget to check out our interview with Mia Fluit, which is also available through all good podcast providers today, and our social media. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you keep up to date with the British GT Fan Show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the British GT Fan Show. Remember, the show's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed or used in any other form without permission. For more information about this, please visit our website, www.bgtfshow.co.uk or contact us via our social media, at bgtfshow. British GT Fan Show is a Storm Vixen Creative and RPS driven media production. To find out more, visit our website at www.bgtfshow.co.uk.